Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast, check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. In this episode, I chat with Chris Salisbury, the author of the book, Wild Nights Out, The Magic of Exploring the Outdoors After Dark. And our favorite NASA Solar System Ambassador, Ted Blank, is back to answer your questions. Are you ready? Let's jump right in. You know, the human tendency is to be afraid of the dark, and yet nighttime holds a magic all its own. And most of us are quite unfamiliar with its secrets and its spells and the awe and wonder that's waiting there for those who will take the time to engage with it. In my childhood, a few decades past, I loved to stay outside as late as possible in the summertime. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest meant that twilight lingered on and on, extending those magical moments when it's too dark to be daytime, but it's still light enough to explore the secrets of the night. I don't need to tell you how our lifestyles have shifted with the advent of smartphones and tablets and Netflix, but one thing we seem to fail to notice is that we don't embrace the nighttime anymore. And we've kind of forgotten that half of the human existence has been under the night sky. I first became acquainted with Chris Salisbury when I stumbled across his book, Wild Nights Out. He perfectly captures the essence of what it means to discover the magic of nighttime. And he offers a tremendous amount of inspiration for engaging in your own nighttime adventures. Chris's love of nature has determined his professional life and his personal lifestyle. He's been a, quote, voice for the earth for the last 27 years as a trainer, an educator, and an outdoor instructor. In 1991, he founded WildWise, which is an outdoor education and training company, after years of working as an education officer for the Devon Wildlife Trust in the UK. He uses every creative means at his disposal to encourage people to enjoy and value the natural world on courses that he facilitates in the UK and abroad. Wildwise offers up to 100 nature connection events every year, and this includes training up to 50 adults per year who want to become mentors for others in this field. Chris is also a professional storyteller, a.k.a. a spindle wayfarer. He's equally at home on the big stage and theater as he is around the campfire, and he loves spinning his tales with great charisma and style. In fact, he's the founder and artistic director for both the Oxford and West Country Storytelling Festivals, and he's also a staff member for the International School Theater Association, and he teaches ensemble theater in schools around the world. Please join me tonight in welcoming to the podcast, Chris Salisbury. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the Night Sky Tours podcast. I can't wait to talk about your book, Wild Nights Out. Thank you so much for taking time with us today. You are very welcome, Vicki. 
and I sending you warm greetings from the southwest of Portugal, where I'm currently in residence writing another book. And um, as we speak, I think the full moon is shortly to eclipse the horizon here. So it's a lovely sort of apposite moment in our you know, night sky calendar to be having this chat. In folklore, they believed that if the moon was red at night, it would be a dry year. But if it was very bright and clear, it would be a rainy year full of harvest. So let's see what yes, happens. I, well, let's see what happens. What I do know is that in, certainly within my tradition, from my lands, the uh, January moon was known as a wolf moon, mm -hmm. I believe, because that time of year when they were most prolific in their um, vocalizations. So anyway, here we are under a January full wolf moon. So I read your book, Wild Nights Out, when I took a trip to New Mexico last year, and I fell in love with the message of this book. And, you know, it's interesting because so many of the books and articles and social media feeds that talk about nature and revolve around getting outside, experiencing the outdoors, they're always focused on daytime experiences. And your entire book from beginning to end is about nighttime experiences. Uh -huh. And I love the tagline of your book, and that is the magic of exploring the outdoors after dark. And I'm curious what sparked your passion for getting people outside at nighttime. Oh, well, that's great. Exactly the right audience, Vicky, for this book <laughs> to, to have also noticed that there's an awful lot of encouragement and support by way of, you know, field guides and, you know, handbooks to deliver good nature connection by daytime, but very little by night. And I spotted that probably about 14 years ago when I set about the task of writing this book. And it's taken that long, not because it's a long book, but because I've been very busy um, having lots of children, for one thing, and just a, <laughs> a, a relentless sort of schedule for my project Wildwise meant that there was very little time over winters to, to get it done. Anyway, one national lockdown later, and I'm pleased to report, got the job done. So it all started for me, you know, formally, you could say, was working for a, a conservation organisation. Here in the UK, we have regional conservation organisations relating to the uh, conservation of wildlife. So I worked for seven years in the Wildlife Trust, and whilst we were there, we conceived of this notion of taking school children out onto nature reserves overnight to give them an immersive, you know, sort of unforgettable encounter with the natural world. And of course, in one night's trip, we would have to get out for night walks. That was my um, apprenticeship, really, with the night, um, working on those events, which um, you'll be pleased to hear we called Wild Nights Out, which is you know, one of the reasons why I titled the book Wild Nights Out, because that's what they were. So hundreds of times over that seven years, I was leading small children into the dark and the wild places to acquaint them with, you know, the creatures of the night, the focus very much on the wildlife, you know, the, the, the naturalist sort of activity. But as I did that, of course, I was getting seduced myself. So it's a, it's a story of um, transformation, really, because when I was a boy, like probably anyone with a, an imaginative sort of childhood, I was terrified of the dark, you know, and had no uh, recourse, really, to enter it as 
sadly, culturally, you know, we don't live with the dark as a sort of natural backdrop um, because we flick on the lights as soon as it gets dark and continue the day's activity unabated. Uh, yeah, as a boy, I was fairly terrified of the dark. And then, then there I was as an adult guiding people into it and then writing about it. So you mentioned the fear of the dark, which is obviously a huge part of why we light up the night, why we avoid the night. Are there other reasons that you have seen that this is why we avoid going outside at night? Well, I mean, it's such an interesting question that you've posed there, because I think there are different levels to answer that. You're right that there's a sort of biological predisposition to fearing what we cannot see, things that leap out at us. And those might be human things in the town or city context. In the natural world, bizarrely, there's even more terror there when I bring people out. Most people are not acquainted with it in the countryside and therefore imagine all sorts of you know, ridiculous things that are going to get them. Of course, there's nowhere safer. In the UK particularly, there's nowhere safer than the countryside at night because, A, there's no people and there's no top predators either. So um, we have a lovely kind of permission here to wander at will, really, by night. But I do think there's something else going on, as you're, I think, alluding to in your question. I do think culturally we have become a bit sort of um, brain-centred and I think we've been losing kind of systematically over sort of probably the last two generations our capacity to sort of reflect and contemplate and enter that phase which the night so beautifully supports with a different vibe a different atmosphere where we can we can kind of you know compost the day where we can turn to kind of you know the matter of conversation with another around a fireside or candlelight where we can dream and project our dreaming onto a kind of blank canvas which is has less diversion and distraction in it given that it's largely you know it does not have so much definition not so much edge and certainly you know not so much detail i think that's you know something else that's going on but i think a wider symptomatic issue culturally is that we're overstimulated and overactive in our particularly our sort of headspaces not to mention of course this great you know contemporary threat of the screen which is ultimately the distraction i think that you've made a really important point there that i've noticed for myself when i go outside at nighttime and i just sit there and look at the stars or i just sit there and chat with maybe my husband or my kids There is a very important contemplative quality to that, something that you just touched on that I think we miss out on so much. I know. There's something soothing and calming and quieting and very much reflective when you go outside at night. But here's another little ingredient for you, Vicky, as well. And this is not to be underestimated. You know, the nighttime, I think, affords more opportunity for genuine kind of wonderment. This is a very under, underrated kind of virtue. Um, in fact, I happen to know that there are some European human rights lawyers busy with finding a way to get uh, children's right to wonder in their Bill of Rights, which just underlines really the significance of this sort of beautiful thing that we, or this capacity that we have as a species to behold and to be in wonderment. I think Einstein, wasn't it, defined education as the growth of wonderment and the night time particularly. And I guess referring most especially, not always, 
to the night sky, the firmament, this confection of stars and moonrise or moonset or crescent moon, there's a certain easy access wonderment available by night. And again, I think you know, we're missing out. Um, we can have that by day. We step into nature reserves, into a garden. There's a certain, of course, something available there too. I do think the nighttime is a sort of expert, really, in delivering moments of wonder. Mm-hmm. You have a whole chapter in your book where you talk about how to learn the night sky, you know, having experiences with the stars and things like that. And I'm curious, what is a really memorable personal experience that you've had under the night sky? Well, you can imagine there's a fair few. <laughs> in a way, there's, yeah, there's two things here. There's one aspect which is in my role as educator and the privilege of bearing witness to others in the night sky. I think um, for me personally, I would say that when I got to a desert for the first time, and in this case, it was the Kalahari Desert, as a very young man, I was fortunate to be involved with the Youth Exchange Project, took us out to remote Kalahari, hosted by the wildlife department there. And I could not believe what I was seeing. I grew up not in the wilds, you know, of the UK. Contrary to popular myth, I was not suckled by she-wolves, but had a very rather bourgeois and suburban upbringing. Now, that just meant that with the, with the prevalence of streetlights, which we have the scourge of the towns and cities, and even a lot of the countryside, streetlights on every night. So I had never seen, you know, a dark sky before. But you can imagine in the remote regions of the earth, like the Kalahari, you get as it's very flat, you get this horizon to horizon confection of stars and it just blew me away. I think, like you, Vicky, when you were talking about just sitting with your husband or your kids and you just like to sit out and gaze up, I don't think my experience or yours is any different from our ancestors' experience, you know, whether it be 50,000 years ago or 200,000 years ago, I think beholding that night sky would have the same impact on us. Yeah, even though the sky is different for us, as you mentioned, because of light pollution, there is this connection, I think, that's just inside of us. We want to understand our place in the cosmos, and we want to understand what's happening up there. It's really powerful. Well, it gives us perspective, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, obviously, paradoxically, we're seeing far further than we can than uh, by day when we're looking at these stars which are impossibly far away but it gives us an immediate sense of you know this wild ride we're on you know on this planet earth orbiting the sun <laughs> at mm-hmm. terrific breakneck speed and spinning around and this sort of sense of just being this tiny little kind of bubble of life in a vast vast universe is not to be underestimated and mm-hmm. i think it underpins really our valuing of life you know our appreciation of its sacredness and this blessing. I agree. What reaction do you typically get when you introduce young people to the constellations and the planets for the first time? It's just like a bit of good old-fashioned storytelling, really, just to give a little bit of narrative around the movements and the cycles, you know, and the join the dots little kind of thing that you do when you're stargazing. And a simple, the simplest sort of ways to describe, you know, whatever it is, Orion, perhaps arising in the east in our wintertime and giving, giving these youngsters uh, holding a night sky 
really for the first time, just assume it's all fixed and they don't believe it's in motion. But these sort of stories, particularly the Greeks were so kind of good at, or at least we've we've held on to some of those narratives maybe more successfully than other cultures. Um, you know, we are, as a species, terrific kind of at pattern recognition. It's what we've done to hunt our way into, you know, a proliferation um, by tracking, you know, patterns on the ground and just noticing above all, all the changes. And it's no different in the night sky and the 24-hour sort of seven days a week 30 days a month kind of exposure to the night sky for a kind of whole life enable people just to, yeah, track these movements. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, it's just stories, just like it is by day, just like it is as an educator, spinning the narratives of, you know, of the dynamic kind of day world um, in terms of living creatures. Do the same thing by night in terms of this very dynamic kind of motion picture that's going on as I like to call it, it's the ultimate screen time and, and the healthy version. And so stargazing experiences really are so much more than just what we see with our eyes. You know, we might say, well, I'm going to go out and do some stargazing, but we never go out and just experience the night with our eyes. So what are some ways that you would encourage people to really engage mm. in those experiences with all of their senses mm. while they're outside? It's true that, you know, for the most part, you know, people are encountering the dark from brightly lit spaces, artificially lit. It does mean that we're much kind of less able to see when we do that. You know, the first thing to say is letting, you know, the, the natural light levels fall and activating our night vision would be the first thing. Now, there's nothing to do so much as just be hanging out whilst, you know, the dusk deepens, you know, and the darkness, you know, arrives. But we can, find, we can see so much more when we're using our night vision. Um, so that's that's one thing. And that's often a revelation, you know, for folks who just haven't been through that transition. So that's one thing. You know, another thing is in terms of a little bit of sensory kind of prep, it usually whilst we're waiting for the light falls, I usually will find myself talking a little bit about our biological kind of receptivity in terms of our eyesight, using the rod cells on the outside of the iris by night, because they're the ones that see both in black and white and see movement particularly well. So we switch over like this. Now, the rod cells being on the outside means they're also capturing movement, particularly in our peripheral vision. So one of the things we do is to practice widening our range of peripheral vision. And that's a little bit like a muscle you can sort of work and flex and practice. You, you know this when you've been out with indigenous people, you know, people who rely on this for their very survival and being taken out into the bush by the, the Bushman, the Kalahari Bushman, for example, it's noticeable how much more they have available to them and that they can see. And I know that this is because of that 24-7 exposure and the very necessity from the vicissitudes of living outdoors at night that they can, they can see even more in the peripheral vision. So we'll do a little exercise where we stretch our hands out wide to the side of us, wiggle our fingers and sort of practice you know, how much can we see in order to make the most, you know, of what's available, because we have actually got 181 degree peripheral vision there. And then there's usually the, the hearing, because obviously from a point of orientation, we do teach that the ears as well are very important in environments where vision is obscured. So just 
again, focusing on reaching out and playing a little games of that countless sounds you can hear, then just recognize that usually none of those sounds can you actually see. Soon kind of helps with, with, yeah, just switching on our ears a little bit. Improving the eyes, improving the hearing really helps. I love that because, I mean, you know as well as I do that, that the more of your senses that you engage in an experience, the more memorable it becomes, the more connected you feel to that experience, the more you can recall it later as you're trying to describe it to somebody else because you have more adjectives to explain your experience. So those are really great tips. Mm. Generally, the outdoors, it's a very dynamic sensory environment. When we're stepping over that threshold from indoors to outdoors, we are generally using a much more sensory perception. Before we wrap up, I really want for you to tell the listeners about your amazing organization called Wildwise. It came out of that work I did with the Wildlife Trust, actually. By beautiful serendipity, I did my last official day's work at uh, Devon Wildlife Trust on December the 31st, 1999. And the next day, of course, the perfect day, something new. So that was Wildwise, born on that first day of the new millennium. That's been a 21-year you know, journey of creating these mm, imaginative invitations, I suppose, to persuade people to step over that threshold and come out with us. Now, that might be a river experience, you know, where we'll canoe the river. It might be a seashore edibles type course where we'll forage on the seaside or uh, indeed in the valleys it might be a you know a night paddle um, canoeing by night it might be a night walk sit with the moonrise it might be our family camp and it might be a, an event for teenagers we've got a very successful uh, program of hunger games style um, teenage camps every summer you know there are mentoring programs for young people long term you know the list is endless and um yeah so this is all about really brokering that connection, finding different ways to do that. Um, but yeah, please just report. It's pretty successful. Not easy, obviously, holding the whole project um, in a sort of sustainable and tenable way. But in terms of all the numbers of people who've come, um, I'm very pleased to report that uh, you know they've had transformative and impactful experiences as well. So yes, come and find us. We'll be waiting with a warm welcome in the wilds of the West Country. That's fantastic. How can people find you online? What are the Worldwise.co.uk. And are you on social media? Can people follow you there? I believe so. It's not my kind of skill set. So someone <laughs> else does all of that, but we're on the Instagram, we're on the Twitter and uh, Facebook, of course, as well. Fantastic. And I'm going to share those links in the show notes that people can go to along with a link to your book. And I hope that everybody reads this book because I was so inspired when I read it. Very oh, excited. Oh, bless you for that. Thank I'm so glad that much, someone Vicky. finally took a hold of that topic and really did well, it. Well, I know. Perfectly. And, you know, the, um, the chair of the Forest School Association, which is a nationwide, very, very sort of um, thorough organization educating kids in the outdoors with this forest school movement, you know, his comment was, gosh, no one's ever done this before, have they? Um, this sort of approach to the nighttime, a stunning omission. So, yeah, and my follow-up book, um, which is going to be Folk Tales of the Night, is due to be published later in the year. Um, so look out for that too. Fantastic. I can't wait to read that one. Those kinds of things are so fun. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on Night Sky Tourist. I am so thrilled to, to share your message with people 
and can't wait for people to really get outside and take some of the things in your book to heart and run with it. Thank you, Vicky. You've been the most charming interviewer I think I've met so far. So bless you for that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Questions for our Q&A segments are answered by Ted Blank, a NASA Solar System Ambassador. Tonight's question comes from my husband, Mark. So, Ted, I recently watched the movie Don't Look Up, and I'm wondering what would really happen to Earth if a comet that big hit us straight on. If a comet the size of Mount Everest slammed into Earth, the global environmental damage would be so great that a mass extinction would take place and very likely all life forms on Earth would die. Now there are some variables like how big the comet was, what direction it came, and what speed it had with relative to Earth. But in general, something with an energy on the order of 100 million megatons would extinguish life on Earth. One thing is for sure, we're such a long way off from being able to save people by sending them to the next closest solar system. This is the only home that we have, and perhaps the only one we're ever gonna have. I hope that the dynamics of our own solar system continue to protect us from these kinds of big objects. Meanwhile, let's keep our house clean and tend to it with love and respect. If you have a question for our podcast, please record a voice memo and email it to us at hello at nightskytourist.com. You can also visit nightskytourist.com slash podcast for more details and tips on how to send it. Don't go away. Our star tour is coming up in just a minute. Hey, Night Sky Tourist fans. Did you know that Night Sky Tourist also has a blog? If you haven't visited it yet, you are missing out on some great stuff. My most recent article includes some valuable tips for stargazing etiquette. You'll also find articles about casadastrophobia, which is a fear of the dark how to see the gorgeous belt of Venus at twilight, Arizona's dark sky corridor, night vision tricks for epic stargazing, my top 10 dark sky locations in the American Southwest, and so much more. When you sign up for my newsletter, I'll connect you to my newest articles so you don't miss out on any of them. You'll also receive my beautiful full-color stargazing guide called Things to See in the Night Sky in 2022. This free guide takes you month by month across the night sky. You'll know when to see the planets and you'll never miss another meteor shower or eclipse. Visit nightskytourist.com to access the blog and to sign up for the newsletter. And together, we'll fall in love with the dark. It's time for our star tour across the night sky. I know that winter temperatures tend to discourage you from going outside at night, but the winter night sky offers some of the most beautiful constellations. This is a great week for stargazing if you have clear skies because the moon will be a thin crescent and that means it won't overpower your view of the stars. So bundle up, gather everyone in your house and I'll meet you outside under the stars. Tonight, let's start by facing north we're gonna give some attention to a fun constellation called Cassiopeia. Now, if you're facing north around nine o'clock p.m., you'll see this constellation toward the west or your left. It looks like a giant jagged E or a W turned on its side. 
Cassiopeia is what astronomers call a circumpolar constellation. And this just means that it's a constellation that circles the pole, and in this case, of course, the North Pole, and it never falls below the horizon as viewed from most of the Northern Hemisphere. There are so many super cool astronomical things to see in this constellation. And the first thing you'll notice if you're in a dark enough location is that the Milky Way runs right through the middle of it. Now, if you're not sure whether or not you are seeing the Milky Way in a light polluted area, here's how you can identify its path. First, find the stars Sirius and Procyon, and they make up part of the Winter Triangle. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky right now, and it's located to the east of Orion. So you're gonna have to look behind you if you're facing north. Can you spot it? Then Procyon can be found if you draw a line through Orion's shoulder stars of Bellatrix and Betelgeuse, and continue that line toward the east, and you'll get pretty close to the bright star of Procyon. Okay, so you got Sirius and Procyon in your view? The Milky Way runs right in between these two stars. All right, now move your eyes a little farther north and find the constellation Gemini. You're gonna look for the twin stars, Castor and Pollux, located to the north of Procyon. Castor and Pollux make up the heads of the twins. Now, can you trace the rest of the constellation down to their feet? The Milky Way runs right across their feet. Now keep moving across the sky toward the constellation that looks like a hexagon or a five-sided object. This is the constellation Auriga with its super bright star, Capella. The Milky Way runs right through the middle of this hexagon. And now move across the sky back to Cassiopeia where the Milky Way runs across the entire span of the constellation. Now if you're in a really dark location, the Milky Way will be really easy for you to spot. If you have a little bit of light pollution stealing some of the darkness, you might think you're just seeing a little streak of clouds. If you're in a location with considerable light pollution, you're not gonna be able to see it at all. In fact, 80% of the world's population can no longer see the Milky Way at night. So if you can actually see it tonight, count yourself as very lucky. Okay, so back to Cassiopeia. If you want to get adventurous with a telescope, you can find numerous open star clusters scattered around the constellation. In Greek mythology, the story of Cassiopeia is similar to our modern-day question of who is the fairest of them all? Queen Cassiopeia and her husband, King Cepheus of Ethiopia, had a daughter, Andromeda. Now, Andromeda was an ordinary mortal, but she was indeed more beautiful than the daughters of the sea god Nereus. Nereus was a close friend of Poseidon, the bad-tempered god of the sea. And one day Cassiopeia boasted about her daughter's beauty. She was going on and on and on about it. And as the bragging escalated, Poseidon decides he's heard enough and he sends the sea monster Cetus, the largest constellation in the sky, to storm the shores of Ethiopia and devour Andromeda. When the news reached Cassiopeia and Cepheus, they were terrified. They knew of the notorious sea monster with the head of a whale, razor-sharp teeth, and the coiled tail of a serpent. So they consulted the trusted oracle of Apollo for advice. They followed the advice to chain Andromeda to a rock off the coast of Java. Well, along comes Perseus, who had just cut off the head of the famous Medusa, 
you know, the monster with a hairdo of venomous snakes. And he sees Andromeda chained to the rock, and he sees the sea monster, Cetus, coming to devour her. With Medusa's head in one hand and his sword in the other, he plunged the sword into the heart of the sea monster and set Andromeda free. They say he later married her, and the couple raised nine children. But Poseidon was angry that Cassiopeia had gone unpunished for her vanity and boasting. So he tied her to her throne, where throughout the year it circles the North Star. And this leaves her dangling upside down from her throne for half the year, clinging to it so she doesn't fall off. Now, if you have a star app on your smartphone, you can find Perseus and Andromeda near Cassiopeia. The indigenous Cree people of North America have an entirely different story about this constellation. A hunter called Panoka was known for his hunting skills, and he set out to find meat for his family, hoping to find an elk. The elders told him of a great elk who was seen running about, but no one was brave enough or quick enough to kill it. The hunter found large elk tracks and he followed them to a pool of water where he saw the elk drinking. Pinocchio threw his spear with all of his might and struck the elk. An animal fell and the hunter had to drag him back to camp. He cut the hide from the gray elk and saw that it was perfect. He cut the meat and he shared it with everyone in his village and they were so grateful to have food. Pinocchio stretched the skin to dry, and he drove wooden stakes through it to hold it in place. Now everyone in the village wanted to honor this great elk, so after Pinocchio stripped the hide and softened it with care, he threw it into the sky. The light above the sky shines through the holes made by the stakes, forming the constellation we know today as Cassiopeia. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Night Sky Tours podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tours podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content. Click on the podcast tab to find instructions for submitting your questions for a future episode. Thank you to Chris Salisbury for sharing about your fascinating work of connecting people to the outdoors at night and for making time to join me from your perch in Portugal. Check out some great links to his work in the show notes or at nightskytourist.com slash 35. We'll see you here again in two weeks. Until then, keep looking up. Thank you.